Welcome to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined by Chris Bouguet. Chris, how was your birthday? Oh, my birthday was great. You know, I spent it at FETC, the Future Educators of Technology Conference. I think that's what it's called, FETC, down in Florida. So I had a blast. Yeah, I presented part of it with Mike Murata. Uh, went to um, a keynote presentation uh, by Daniel Pink, which I'm going to tell you about here in a minute. And that was just great. It was a great birthday. And then I spent the weekend in Florida with my family. They flew down and we... Um, we just chilled out on the beach a little bit, which was which was great. I saw all the beach photos. I was completely jealous. It was not beach weather here in Los Angeles. Um, so I was following you vicariously and living vicariously through you on Facebook. Um, I also see that you were hanging out with Jane Odom. Uh, yes, Jane Odom and I presented together at FETC, and she took me out for my birthday, and we palled around uh, one evening together and hung out with her for a little bit. Um, and if people aren't familiar, Jane Odom is someone we, we have interviewed on this podcast, and uh, she works for PRC. She's the one who's kind of the, the brains behind the AAC Language Lab. <laughs> yes. So what we presented, that's actually part of my FET story, so I'm going to save it. We just foreshadow this story a little bit because I'm, I'm going to bring Jane up here in a minute. So, Chris, I have to ask you, what were your gems from the conference? Because I feel like when you go to a conference, you learn a lot of stuff, right? A lot of things come in, but what are the things that have really stuck and that were really meaningful for you during the conference? Okay, I've got maybe three or four here. We'll see how much time we've got because I could probably do a whole episode just on the FETC takeaways, and it's pretty fresh in my brain. So here we go. You ready for the first one? I'm ready. All right. The first one was before I went to the conference, I was kind of scrolling through the app looking at, well, what, what sessions am I going to attend? You know, let me, what fits around my schedule when I'm presenting? Uh, what do I want to see? What's kind of the theme? And remember, FETC, it's meant for technology coaches and administrators who are, it's, it's really meant for general ed teachers. There was an inclusive strand, which I was one of the presenters for that. And there was a handful of other people that were doing presentations under this inclusive strand. But it's not a conference that's focused on disability, as opposed to, let's say, ATIA, the Assistive Technology Industry Association, or, or ASHA, you know, where there is uh, this disability focus. This is not that. This is really has that inclusion track. So as I was scrolling through looking, what do I want to attend? Of course, I'm looking through the inclusive track, but I'm also noticing, well, what are the other trends this year? Year, just in ed tech in general, you know, like last year, you might say that AR, uh, augmented reality and VR were very big. And those were still big this year. But the champion, the one that came out ahead of every, I'm going to let, let everyone guess for a second. The suspense is killing me. Uh, it's not what you would think. So here, at least it's not what I was expecting because, well, I'll tell you what it is. It is esports. Are you familiar with esports, Rachel? No. Tell me what that is. Okay. Well, you're, you're familiar with sports, right? Football yes. and basketball, of course, right? Well, esports is video gaming and competitive video gaming where you're on a team of uh, usually four other players and then you play against other people either in the same room, like other schools, or remotely. And then the, the added kind of uh, extra element there is that it's usually being streamed out on Twitch. So Twitch is sort of like YouTube. It's a, it's a website. You can sign up and get a free account and it has all of these uh, streams happening of games all over the world, you know, but it's usually live right? And then you have a, there's a commenting feature so you can comment on the games, but it's, it's this competitive sports. Um, it's called eSports. And I know my school district, as a matter of fact, um, one of the snow days we had a couple weeks ago, 
there was, I came across a webinar that some of our, our technology people were putting out about what esports were because of our tech, some of our technology people are coaches for our own local esports initiative. And I, of course, jumped right on that bandwagon uh, and I wanted to be the biggest promoter of it as possible because esports equals inclusion, right? There are students that will not be students that I that that I work with that will not be participating in uh, physical sports, I guess, or traditional sports, uh, where they're going to go out and play football. Or if they are, they're going to do that thing where it's like, okay, we're going to let them score a touchdown or let them score a uh, you know a basket, and it's not really authentically uh, participating in the experience or they're the, the, the water person, you know, uh, they're the, they're the, what's it called? The, you know, the person that runs around and grabs all the stuff. They're, they're not really part of the team or they're not really playing as part of the team yet. When you look at esports and video gaming, there are definitely students that I work with that would be sitting in a chair right next to another student that doesn't have a disability, naturally playing these games together, uh, communicating, collaborating. Uh, video gaming is all about critical thinking and figuring out what you did wrong and what you have to do. Uh, some of the games, one of them is called Rocket League. Uh, Rocket League is cars in a big arena that it's basically soccer playing with these hyped up supercars and you push this ball around by hitting it with your car, right? And so um, recently when I was in Georgia, I saw Bill Binko. Remember I, mm. Bill Binko, also someone from the podcast from AT Makers, and he was showing me how to play Rocket League with, uh, you, now people can't see me, but Rachel can see me. I'm making the, the universal sign for glasses by putting your fingers, your finger and your thumb together and putting them over your eyes right now. Um, it's a quick screenshot, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but Bill had made glasses that you could control the Xbox controller with your head using these glasses to control your car to play Rocket League. And so just this whole convergence, esports is the new big thing, and there are lots of scholarships. Uh, I think I heard that video games surpassed the movie industry uh, a couple of years ago, maybe five to six years ago, um, in how much revenue it makes, video games. Uh, and so there are a lot of scholarships out there right now for professional esports athletes. Hmm. There are scholarship opportunities, uh, or there's sponsorship opportunities for, for esports athletes. And so uh, these, these clubs are popping up, and and they're being um, looked at just like a traditional sport. You'd have a coach, you have a team, you play your game, you practice, and you communicate about what you do, you strategize, you analyze the stats, and look at those, which you can imagine, you know, a football player watching the, uh, the replay of their, of their game and analyzing the stats and comparing and contrasting all the different stuff from the previous team that they're or the, the team they're about to play and looking at this film from the last game, all of that happens with, with esports. And there's a whole other layer to esports, which is because you're streaming it out on Twitch, there's a whole opportunity there for kind of expansions. Like, so just like in football or basketball, how you have these analysts and you have these commentators, you know, well, that's a whole extra thing. So imagine uh, a student watching the, the Twitch stream of these people playing the game and kind of commenting and explaining to the audience that doesn't know what's really going on, you know, uh, just like you would watch Joe Buck and Troy Aikman when they're doing their commentary, that same thing happens for esports. So I know it's kind of a like, what are we talking about? But I totally could picture students who use AAC 
playing those games, right? Being part of those teams. And because it's just sort of born inclusive, there's not a lot of effort on anyone's part to make that actually happen. You know, where if you were to say, well, what if we tried to have uh, an AAC user be on the, the track team or the football team? Well, where's their device? You know, how they, how they using their, what are they using when they're running around the track? You know what I mean? Or what are you using when you're playing football? But in, in this, you could have the device right there on one side where they've got their video, uh, you know, their video gaming console right there next to them, and they could be in, moving back and forth between the two a little bit more seamlessly. So I just thought it was huge. I love this. I love it for so many reasons. Um, my question is, so I'm, I'm on board. You've sold me on eSports, Chris. I don't know how to, how to get started. So my question is, it, how can I incorporate this into my practice? How can I start utilizing eSports and getting kids who maybe haven't had access to eSports interested in that? Yeah, well, so practice-wise, I think a very low-hanging fruit would be to subscribe to Twitch and look up, understand how that works. Like, oh, I just, it's like any other website where you can go in and create an account, right? It's really no different than, than Google or anything else. But then you look up the different video games. So I mentioned Rocket League. That's one particularly that doesn't have any violence. It's just, you know, it's soccer with cars. So you could watch that together. And that could be just, just simply watching a video together and asking a student to teach you it. Mm-hmm. And then talking about where the, if we're talking about core vocabulary, well, of course, you know what I mean? It's go and stop and, and hit and uh, win and lose and, and this mm-hmm. way and that way and all that kind of stuff. So that, like, like I said, that's just an, a, a simple, easy way to get interested in it and get a student interested in it would be to watch some other people play. And, and that's a whole nother phenomenon. Who would think you'd have whole systems set up to watch people play video games, but it's continuing to grow, you know? Um, so that's one way. And then the second way would be to, a, especially if you're doing home visits, you could actually, that could be a part of your, you know, your therapy is to play the game with the student. And then of course there's screenshots and all, I mean, there's all, all sorts of ways you can make video gaming parts of your therapy. Hmm. I love this. Well, let's keep going with all these gems of wisdom. What else did you learn at FGTC? Okay. So besides tons and tons and tons of sessions on esports and a whole esports lounge in the, in the vendor hall, which I did spend some time in the vendor hall talking about so many different people, the next big takeaway and kind of aha moments were, uh, happened to me during the keynote presentation. So the keynote presentation this year was from a guy named Daniel Pink. Have you heard of Daniel Pink? I have not, no. So Daniel Pink is an author who, uh, he's, I think he's best known for his book called Drive, about like motivation and what motivates people. I feel like but, actually I have heard of this. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I might have yeah. read that book. <laughs> I'm bad with names. Well, his most recent book is called When, and it's all about the timing of things. And he was equating some of the research that he did from all these different disciplines. And that's, that got me right there is that I love looking at research from different disciplines and infusing it into my own practice in educational practices and uh, what we do as therapists and, and coaches. And so he was looking at all these different research articles on when, and uh, when are, when's the time to do something or when's the worst time to do something and so for instance he said he just jumped right out of his presentation and said i will never ever ever schedule a doctor's appointment in the afternoon and especially especially if it's like some sort of surgery or something uber important he's like i I had to get a colonoscopy i did it in the morning i didn't do it in the afternoon because the research shows that people find more polyps in the morning than they do in the afternoon doctors make more mistakes in the afternoon than they do in the morning get your stuff done in the morning so um but he talks about 
this was, I thought was fascinating. And really, I, I know we're going to, I couldn't wait to tell you about this because I can just see us brainstorming what this means for practice, right? He said that typically we think of like sustaining our energy level all day long. From the moment you wake up to the moment you come home or go to bed, you're at this, you know, static line. He goes, but that's not how the body works. That's not how humans work. Generally in the morning, uh, you're at your peak performance uh, and you want to be doing during that, those first couple hours of the day, uh, analytical tasks. Anything where you need to analyze something, uh, you need to be thinking of, really anything that's sort of logical you want to be doing in the morning. Uh, as the afternoon hits, you you fall into this valley that he calls, calls the trough. And he's like, you really can't avoid it. You know, and you've seen that like after lunch, if you ever had a presentation, everyone's kind of like, uh, you know. Mm -hmm. In a food um, coma, yeah, that's me. Yes. <laughs> he said, that's the best time to do administrative work. You know, maybe just answering quick emails, uh, working on your spreadsheet or putting your data in, you know, that kind of stuff that doesn't take a super lot of brain power. It's maybe just transferring one thing to another. And then the third part of the day, uh, is what he calls recovery. Your body comes back out of it and you still have more energy when you get home uh, or, you know, towards the afternoon or, and when you get home. said the afternoon activities are really when your brain is primed to do more brainstorming. You're more flexible then. Uh, you want to be having meetings about the, the future of your business or your practice in the afternoons because the people that you're working with are all in this sort of free-flowing brainstorming state. And I just found that fascinating. He, he equated it to um, school and he said, there's studies show, and he quoted one from California actually, it made me think of you, that um, the math scores for students that took math tests were much higher if they took them in the morning than if they took them in the evening. Same students would take similar math tests and they would find that if you did it in the morning, you get higher scores. And so just imagine what that means for kids trying to go to college, kids who are, you know, taking the SATs, kids are, you know, just your whole life. What if you were in an afternoon math class? But you're really, your brain is primed to do better at math in the morning. Would you have an advantage to be there in the morning? Mm. Right? Yeah. Well, here's here's what I think of. I actually work with a kiddo who has a mitochondrial disorder. And okay. so energy is a really big topic of conversation when we're thinking about his school day, his services. Um, and I see a huge difference in him. If I see him in the afternoon, um, it's almost not even worth, it's not even worth the, the session, to be honest, because he's so tired, he's so fatigued. Um, and so like his prime time is in the morning. And, you know, of course, when I first got on the phone call with mom, before I'd even met him, I'm like, oh, like, you know, I don't know if I have, the timing's gonna work and I, didn't, you, you kind of always push that off, right? You're like, well, we can make it work. You know, it's not a big deal. We kind of just make excuses as to like, well, I know he's probably not his best, but it'll be fine. But with this kid, it is crazy. So over the Christmas the holiday break, um, I saw him in his prime window and it was night and day. It was, I was like, oh my God, I always have to see him at this time because it was just like remarkable how much better he did, how much more ready to learn he was, how much more regulated he was, how he was attentive and playful and engaged. And it's just like, oh, that is such a huge part of what we do is figuring out when kids are best ready to learn. How does that really impact all the kids we see, you know? So here's something I was contemplating with therapy. You know, sometimes you have to see students individually and sometimes it's better to see them in a group, mm -hmm. right? Would it be better 
to try and schedule individual sessions where you are seeing kids individually in the morning and then see them in groups in the afternoon. Is that one, or would it be better to be flipped? I don't know. When you're coaching teachers, would it be better to coach them in the morning than in the afternoon? So often our scheduling is dictated by not our brains or when our brains are primed to, to do the best work for the, with the task that we have in mind. It's just what's convenient. Well, the kid happens to be here at two, so come at two, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I know that's a logistical nightmare. He, he said that as well. Um, he's like, yeah, how can we have math happening for everybody in the morning? You know, uh, someone needs to take it in the afternoon because yeah. all the math right? teachers on deck, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, he's like, how do you do it? You know, but we should, you know, that we, we should be looking at how to do that. He said something else that was really interesting. I, I thought younger kids, as so many people know, and you might remember when you were a little kid, you wake up early, right? And you're bugging your mom by jumping under bed. Come on, mom, dad, get up, get up. And he's like, but then you get to high school and you're like, don't get me up before 10, you know, don't wake me up early. He said, the research here is again, very, very clear. High school students, they sleep longer in the morning. Therefore, we should let them sleep. Their brains and their body rhythms just go that way. Do not have school before 8.30. Um, 9, 9.15 is even better. He's like, I'm not saying we start at, at 2 in the afternoon because that's during that, that downtime. But between 9.15, between really 8.45 and 9.15 is when we should start school. He said the national average for when high school starts right now in the United States is 8.03 in the morning. Uh, so I know our school district, our, we don't start until 9. Um, but if you're a school district that, that doesn't start till you know, starts before that, you're working against that kind of high school brain where they need to sleep more. And that also got me thinking about coaching and students and working with families, which is, well, okay, I'm going, to get, I'm going to get my day started at eight. So I'll be at your house at eight or come to my office at eight or let's do the session at eight o'clock. Well, if it's a high school student, maybe you shouldn't, you know, mm -hmm. uh, maybe you should wait till after the, the nine, nine o'clock hour because they need to sleep more. Well, I think, and like you said, this is kind of a logistical nightmare. Um, <laughs> and everyone listening is probably like, sure, Rachel and Chris, like sounds really great, but like not realistic. But what I will say is if you have the opportunity and the flexibility in your schedule, which sometimes we do, right? We have a kiddo, we have three kids who are absent and we have this huge gap in time. And it's like, oh, wow, you know, look at all this time that I have that I didn't think I was going to have this morning. My, my schedule is different. I would encourage you guys to pull the kids that, you know, perhaps if it's in the morning, you pull the kids that you typically see in the afternoon, um, just as a way to gauge, does it make an impact? Because for some kids, maybe it doesn't, but for some kids, it probably will. And so I would just encourage you guys to start thinking outside of the box a little bit. Um, it's not to say that you could always see all of your kids, the times that you think that they would perform optimally, but it is really important. Um, I'm thinking too about a kiddo. I, I'm working with an insurance company right now who's trying to discharge this child for not making enough progress, which is the craziest thing. I feel like I could have an entire episode dedicated to a rant about how absurd that is. But because he's not, they're only looking at standardized test scores. They're not looking at actual objective measurements on the goals that we've set and that he's achieved. So of course, he's up for reeval in a few months. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm thinking about everything. I'm like, he needs to come. When's his prime time? Like he needs to have breakfast. 
in his belly. He needs to come when he's like prime focus because I really need to show on the standardized assessment that this child has made progress. Um, and so it's just like, this is actually very relevant in my brain right now because I just spoke with the mom a few days ago and we were brainstorming about how are we going to achieve optimal results here because that's really what we need. So there's one other thing that Daniel Pink had to say that I thought was particularly fascinating, and that was this. He said, we all humans tend to kick at the end. Uh, the, the, the old analogy or the old uh, phrase that my wife uses all the time is the horse smelling the barn. You know, she's an old runner, uh, veteran runner, and she's run a little bit faster at the end to kind of to cross the finish line. Uh, and the same thing with a horse runs a little bit faster to get into the barn at the end of the, at the day when they're, when they're coming back to the stable. And he said that's so true in humans uh, in general. He said uh, a study was done with Hershey Kisses where the first group of people were given five Hershey Kisses, but they didn't tell them that the last kiss was going to be the fifth kiss. And they asked them to rate the Hershey Kisses. So here's Hershey Kiss number one, rate it. Number two, rate it. Number three, same kisses, right? Number four and number five. And they didn't know that that was the last one. And then they gave another group of people the same thing. And they said, here's Hershey Kiss number one. Here's Hershey Kiss number two, please rate that. Here's number three, number four, and here's your last Hershey Kiss. And so the only variable difference, because uh, the chocolate was the same, was one, they didn't tell them that this was the last one, and one group, they did say this was the last one. And so you can guess what the results were, is that they looked at the results, the first Hershey Kiss, everyone rated it the same, second, third, fourth, all the same, in the fifth Hershey Kiss. The group that knew it was going to be their last rated it much higher than the people that didn't know it was going to be their last. And he said that's evidence that we kick to the end. We shouldn't just kind of roll into an ending. We should have some sort of great punch there. You know, the same thing with um, lessons or therapy or um, some sort of learning experience. It's think of it as a beginning a middle and then let people know when the ending's coming because they will work a little bit harder because they know the ending's, ending is in sight. Ooh, so I have a few things to say to that. One, my mouth is watering for Hershey Kisses. So thanks, Chris. Um, I need chocolate now. Um, two, I went on a trail run this morning. Um, such a beautiful morning. It was like kind of a little bit overcast, but the sun was peeking out and I did the exact same thing and I actually thought about it. I'm like, this is so funny about myself. At the end of every run, I always push a lot harder when I know it's going to be over. Um, but so I think this is an important reminder when we're working with kids, telling them, you know, we only have 10 minutes left or this is the last activity we're going to do because I do think that we tend to, as human beings, push a little bit harder when we know that the end is in sight. Another reason to utilize visual supports for kids because five more minutes or 10 more minutes might not mean anything to a child who doesn't understand time concepts. Um, so showing them by having, you know, a token board or a visual timer or something that's visual, um, a visual representation of time is really effective because you can say, there's only one more token. There's only, you know, look, there's only a little bit, little bit of this little sliver of time left on this visual timer. Um, so I think it's a really important thing to remember in our practice. I know I say that to myself all the time. I, you know, if I'm running or if I'm, what any any sort of task that takes any sort of endurance, I say, well, geez, I can do that for two more minutes. You know, it's two minutes or three minutes or whatever the, the amount is. You know you'll get through it because the ending's there. And like you said, making a visual for kids really helps them know that, that, that it's not forever, you know. I find that same thing with writing activities. Um, 
when you have some sort of graphic organizer for kids to write, it's so much less intimidating than a big open white sheet of paper or a big white screen, you know, I got to fill this whole thing, you know, no, there's only five boxes and look, you already did three of them. There's only two left. Oh, okay. I can do two more. You know, um, that concept that you, when you know, when the end is coming, you're going to do better. I think it's fascinating. And, 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 and I guess we're talking about working with students, but I know there's a lot of people here that listen to our podcast that also do professional development. And I I think that same thing sort of uh, should, should be placed in mind. First, what we were talking about earlier is if you ever put PD together where you have two half-day sessions, like, okay, a bunch of people are going to come for the morning and then a bunch of people are going to come for the afternoon, you should know that that afternoon group might not have the same experience as the morning because their brains are primed for more flexibility than the analytical brains in the morning. And then th the same thing with okay, whatever you're experiencing, whatever you're designing for these three hours, know that if you tell them at the end, this is when we're going to do our, our brainstorming. I like to put, for instance, uh, this was real, really um, reassuring to me. I like to put a brainstorming sort of planning activity towards the end where you're going to be like, okay, we've, we've, we've talked about all the content we're going to talk about. So now it's your turn to make a plan for what you're going to actually change in your practice or what you're going to, what your goals are. And doing that towards the end also helps people realize that one, the end is coming, but then they had that, that takeaway, that walk away, what I'm going to go do something with, with the information I learned. I love it. I love it. So what else did you learn? So uh, a third thing that I think was just kind of an awesome moment was that actually the very first session that I went to. So uh, unfortunately, I got to the conference uh, the morning of that Wednesday, January 15th, a little bit late because I had to take a shuttle and I didn't realize just how long the traffic or how much traffic there is in Miami. Um, despite everyone telling me, I didn't realize it was going to be that long. Regardless, anyway, I get to the conference. So I was a little bit late to the first session that I went to, which was Carol Allen. So Carol Allen, if you don't know who she is, uh, she is, works in Britain and she works primarily with uh, preschool students, or at least her this session was about uh, early childhood education. And she showed a bunch of different apps and a bunch of different tools. And she talked a little bit about how you don't wait to introduce technology. And she wasn't even referring to AAC. Or she was just mentioning like, if you think a student might need writing support down the line, then let's give them writing support even in the preschool ages so that and introduce them to tools that are well beyond their use, but they'll figure it out. Like he, she was talking about a reading pen, for instance, mm -hmm. where you take a pen and you scan over some words and it says it out loud. Well, you wouldn't expect a preschool student to be uh, reading those words, but what happens is if you introduce it to them early enough and you show them how they can scan some words and they hear what the words are, then later on, when they absolutely need that tool, it won't feel like so, oh, now I got to implement this thing that I've never heard of and I have to get this because what's wrong with me? They've just been using it since they were preschool and they're just like, oh, okay, yeah, I, I use this pen, you know? Yep. Um, so she was making that point. Um, what I really want to tell you about that session was a video that she, that she showed. So I'm sitting in the back of the room because uh, I came in a little bit late and I actually sat right next to Kelly Suiting. So Kelly Suiting is one of the patents people that uh, is in Indiana. She's uh, on Twitter. You can find her. And her and I have known each other for many years. When I went to the Access to Education conference, she's one of those people that put that on. She's going to be doing the AT feud at ATIA. She's one of the team captains, right? So anyway, she was in that, you know, I walked into the back and she was sitting at that same table that I, you know, uh, sidled up to. And I was like, Kelly, how's it going? She's like, oh, it's great. So we're sitting there watching Carol's presentation and Carol brings up this video 
called How to Train Fleas. Have you heard this video? No. <laughs> uh, I need to look it up. So what it shows is this kind of doctor-looking person bringing over a, uh, a jar, um, and he puts the jar on a table, and he says, this video is how to train fleas. And Kelly and I look at each other like, what, what is this? You know? And he goes, you take some fleas, and you put them in the jar. And then you take a lid, and you put it on top of the jar. And then you let the flea sit for three days. And then the person walks away and it's like one, two, three days. Come back and open the jar. The fleas will no longer jump any higher than the lid that you put on the jar. And the, the fleas have become trained not to jump out of the jar. Uh, and beyond that, their offspring will no longer jump higher than the jar, higher than the lid of the jar. It'll genetically be passed on to their, to their kin that this is as high as they can jump the lid of the jar and kelly and i looked at each other and our jaws dropped like yes this is what we say i know this is how i kick off most of my presentations about um about having the right mindset and not limiting people right uh do not be the lid of the jar you know uh, yes. and it just and kelly says the same thing we have a very similar mindset so we just kind of looked at each other like this is the best video we've ever seen i got to find it and i know luke will find it and put it in the show notes for us um, because it was just that's such an eye opening like when you are the lid of the jar it means people can only jump so high so don't be that you know yeah wow who knew that a flea video could teach us so much? Yes. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Everybody listening, don't be the lid. Don't be the lid. <laughs> we should get t-shirts. <laughs> so, so now beyond my flea video and talking about the traffic in Miami and talking about when, the power of when, uh, there was some very specific AAC stuff that, uh, that I think it's really important to go to sort of general ed focus conferences and focus on inclusion and inclusive practices to kind of merge those two worlds, you know? Um, and so Jane Odom was there. Like I said, we pre presented together on, uh, on robots. And uh, I'm going to tell you about that in a little bit because Jane, I, Jane and I recorded a little bit for the podcast. We're going to play her interview here in just a minute. Uh, it's just a short seven minutes of what, kind of something that transpired at FETC uh, where Jane and I did some work with Apple. Um, but before that, I want to tell you that Jane and I did pal around a little bit and we spent some time in the vendor hall going from booth to booth, just talking about all, uh, talking to the vendors and, and really asking them very specific accessibility questions. And because it's a general ed conference, some of them were all over it. So for instance, we asked, can you control uh, the iPad using switches? You know, your, your, whatever your app is, is it, does, is it coded in a way that you could access it with switches? Um, we looked at some companies that uh, Makey Makey, for instance, does, um, it's like an interface that also works with switches. Makey Makey is like a little circuit board that has these alligator clips that come off of it, wires with alligator clips at the end, and you can clip those alligator clips onto different things to make them touch activated. So uh, the famous one is like Play-Doh or um, bananas, right? And the reason that's so exciting is that those things can become switches now. So if you hit the the, the, the Play-Doh, or if you hit the banana, that activates whatever it's connected to. Well, the back end of a makey-makey, so if you start with the alligator clips and it goes from the wire over to the, the circuit board, well, then what's it connected to? What's the other end connected to? Well, that end is a USB, so it's usually plugging into a computer of some sort, 
And so Jane there working from PRC had an accent with her. So we were like, hmm, I wonder if it'll work with this. And we plugged it into the USB port of an accent. We were, and the, what, I, what I'm really getting at here is that we went to vendors and we tried to see if their stuff worked with the accent device, if they were considering their coding platform, if they were thinking about how could that could be accessible for students with disabilities uh, who have alternative access needs. Um, if you can control things, and this is kind of, again, foreshadowing what we really did with Apple, with the new voice control feature. So if you're not familiar with the new voice control feature, well, in your most recent version of, uh, of iOS, which I think is iOS 14, uh, they updated it to have something called voice control. So voice control, you uh, so uh, make sure no one has this turned down right now, folks, if you're listening, because it's going to, it might activate your iPad, <laughs> but you first you go turn it on and then you say show numbers and little gray circles with numbers in the middle of them pop up all over the iPad and anything that you or I who have control of our fingers would be able to touch on the touch screen. Right. Um, and so someone now can control the, the iPad by saying tap number four. And that would activate whatever the whatever's on the screen. And so Jane and I got super jazzed about this, but we wanted to make sure that it actually worked with, in her case, the accent that she happened to have there, you know, and trying it with the with that kind of synthetic voice, you know. Uh, and we were happy to report that it does. Just like in, in very similar ways, people have tested out AAC devices and voices to control their Amazon Echoes or their Google Smart Home. It can now also control your iPad. And we get into it a little bit here in the interview. And again, it's, it's a, this is a very short interview. It's only, it's like for, a, I was thinking of it for a small talk, but since, because Rachel, I ranted so much about FETC and I couldn't control myself, it, we're just going to play it here at the end of this episode. Um, there's some huge implications here for the world of people who can not control iPads by touching the screen or even with switches, if they can use their voice or an augmented voice or an alternative voice, they can now control the iPad. And that is if the apps are designed that way, most are, many are, we found some glitches with some apps that, um, yes, the numbers would come up, um, but there's still some drag and drop components that don't work right because it is very new. Uh, I think it came out in September, you know, iOS mm. 14 came out in September of 2019. So Jane and I talk about some of the implications here, uh, particularly with uh, jobs, you know, what that could mean for learning how to code, you know, uh, learning all sorts of different things that, that relate to getting people uh, into the workforce. Ah, oh, man, I love this. I'm so excited to hear this interview with Jane Odom. Before we head into the interview, Chris, let's talk about our Patreon. Yes. We now have a Patreon that people can go to sign up for and support the podcast. So Rachel, if people are interested in signing up for Patreon, what do they do? So you can go to our Patreon site, which is patreon.com backslash talking with tech, or you can go to our bit.ly link bit.ly backslash TWT pod. So when you click on that link, what do you see? So you'll see our core members group, which is $8 per month. You hit select, and then it takes you to a page to sign up. Um, once we get to 50 members, 
We're going to open up new levels of our Patreon where we're going to offer lots of bonus content, potentially Q&A with Chris and I. We're really interested in creating a community around this podcast. Right now, Chris and I talk to you every week and we love that you listen, uh, but we want to hear what you guys have to say. We want it to be more of a conversation. And so we're really excited to have launched this Patreon. Um, so please, please, please go to patreon.com backslash talking with tech um, and you can sign up and you can support our podcast. Rachel, $8 a month, that's like $2 an episode. I mean, if we if we put out four episodes a month, I mean, it's only $2 an episode. Is that about right? That's exactly right. I mean, you spend double that at least when you go to Starbucks and order a coffee. So uh, we would really appreciate your support. Um, and honestly, we have an entire team that helps make this podcast possible. We have an audio editor, Michaela. She's wonderful. Uh, we have a producer, Luke Paget, who does amazing stuff for our podcast behind the scenes. Um, and so we, we really want to be able to support them as well. Um, so we would really appreciate your guys' support. So one more time, what's the link? It's patreon.com backslash talking with tech. Or, of course, you can go to our bit.ly link, bit.ly backslash TWT pod. So without further ado, here's my interview with Jane Odom at FETC 2020. Welcome to the Talking With Tech podcast. And here I am sitting at the Future Educators Technology Conference with Jane Odom. Welcome back to the podcast, Jane. Hello. <laughs> so let's tell people where we are right now. We, you and I uh, are in this big, the Miami Beach Convention Center. We pulled up to a little spot where it was kind of quiet. Uh, we're, we are huddled on the floor around the phone where we're recording this. But we had to record it because we're super excited about what's going on. So we, we have a presentation today. You want to tell people about that presentation? So we are working on using coding to teach core vocabulary for students that are using AAC devices. Yes, yes. Uh, people who have listened to the podcast have heard me and Rachel talk about this before, that you could make the argument maybe that literacy has been sort of a, an afterthought and we're all trying to play catch up. You know, when I say we're all, meaning the country and maybe the world, and computer science is that sort of new thing that we don't want people with disabilities to be kind of left behind that and that be also an afterthought. So here we are at this conference trying to promote that and future conferences. We're going to be, two weeks from now, we're going to be down at ATIA presenting as well. And so we just had a very exciting meeting well, with There's Apple. a backstory, Chris. So yeah. my pet peeve was we, we were doing this presentation and it's great, but a lot of our students don't have um, use of their hands that are, that's functional. They don't have the fine motor control to control a mouse to do some drag and drop that a lot of the coding requires. And so I was asking all these coding companies if they were universal design and if they had keyboard shortcuts that we could program onto a device. And they all looked at me and was like, during the headlights, like, what are you talking about? Mm -hmm. Until yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> so something that has happened recently, and I can't remember when it came out, maybe September was uh, the voice control control feature of, it's an accessibility feature of the iOS system. So uh, the most recent version of iOS, if people aren't familiar, uh, has this new accessibility feature where you can turn on this voice control and control the, the entire device using your voice. Of course, we work with people that sometimes have trouble using their voice. So 
we wanted to test it to see will it work with a synthesized voice and absolutely <laughs> it does so so i was at the apple presentation there was a little playground yesterday and we went to a presentation on swift mm -hmm. and it's a playground where kids can go in and learn to code let Probably. me explain that okay. real okay. quick so swift is a is a language like if people have heard of um python or they've heard of c plus plus or something like that which is very sophisticated stuff right and swift can also be very sophisticated but apple has developed a app called Swift Playgrounds where you can download the app, which is free, and it walks you through. It starts very basic and then gets very complex and it takes you step by step through. And what we wanted to experiment with was, well, could you do this? You, could you completely control the app using uh, your voice? So they also have a feature that you can turn on that literally numbers everything on the screen so that you have a very small set of commands that you a student needs to learn. So it would be tap one, tap two. And they showed me how to turn on the voice commands and then turn on the, this feature, which is in the overlay menu, where you can have everything numbered, or you can just say, turn on numbers, and it pops up. And now the student can say, tap six, and put a move forward command in their box. They can hit tap six again and do it again, and they can hit um, tap 18, and it says, you know, do, do the whole thing. And it was just... Goosebumps. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> like, Amazing. Like, oh my gosh. Like, and it, so they, they let us go up there this morning to test everything out with a device. So I brought our accent communication device um, just using a regular synthesized voice on there, and it was seamless. It worked Absolutely. beautifully. Yeah. Beautifully. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what that really means, uh, so impl implementation-wise and future-wise, is when we were talking this with, uh, with, the, with the people, the, the Apple representatives, is that someone who uh, uses a device could now learn to code all by themselves uh, independently and really learn Swift, this programming language, this is which the language that, that uh, eventually leads you to what they were saying, Xcode. Uh, it's kind of the next level up of Swift, but it's the idea that you, you progress through it step by step and that's how actual developers actually code the apps that you're using on your phone right now. Is the, the back end is this thing called Xcode. And so we could have uh, device users actually having jobs as developers. Maybe some already exist. Maybe people are like, yeah, we already do this. But I, I didn't know that it was really possible until the voice control came out. And, and possible for our kids that have alternative access. So somebody that's using eye gaze or somebody that's using switches or head pointing can now do everything independently, which is absolutely huge. Yes. Absolutely huge. And uh, and it's more than just the coding, because it would actually work with any app. Absolutely right. any app. And so we were just like, duh. Yes. <laughs> it's like mind blown. Like, this is absolutely amazing. And I think what was also really cool was we got to show this to the Apple folks, and they recorded what we were doing, and they're going to show that to their accessibility team. And so maybe this is going to move things forward to a new level that we haven't even thought about yet. Yes, what comes next, right? <laughs> yeah, it's super exciting. I, I, just to, I think there was one little limitation they mentioned, which is... Um, when someone develops an app, uh, some any any sort of developer, they don't necessarily have to be thinking about accessibility, and so they'll they'll put some features on there and they get feedback. So uh, you could launch an app that doesn't really work with voice right. control, right, right, uh, right. but 
this is, that's part of why we exist, right? And why this podcast exists and why we are working so hard is to let those developers know that you should be thinking about these things because it, it opens up such a wide uh, range of possibilities and just enjoying their life, right? Well, and, and inclusion. I mean, now you've got all these amazing STEM programs in all the schools now. And we're trying to make sure that our kids aren't an afterthought, mm-hmm. that, that the students that we work with are included in all of that because now they, they can do it all. Yes, there's yep. really no reason they can't because mm-hmm. the, the technology is there to, to help them do it. Well, I can't wait to present with you later <laughs> on today and next, uh, well, I guess two weeks from now at, at, at ETIA. It's going to be a blast. Um, we'll keep trying to record little things like this and let people know how it's going. If you can't make it to ETIA, if you, obviously, if you're not here at the uh, at this particular conference, um, so so this way that people can keep well, learning. There's a webinar that needs to happen, right? Yeah, that's right. We <laughs> could totally put a webinar out to kind of show people uh, how this can work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you, Jane, for coming back on the yes, podcast, sir. and we'll talk to you soon. All right, cheers. Hi, I'm Mei-Ling Chan. And I'm Martin Sibley. And we are the hosts of the Exceptional Leaders Podcast, where we spotlight high-profile topics and amazing people who are changing the worldview on disability. Even though we are oceans apart, we are bringing people from all over the world together to discuss inclusion, advocacy, accessibility, and real-life journeys. So listen to the Exceptional Leaders Podcast to hear the voices and stories from amazing changemakers and be inspired to make a real difference in the world. You're listening to the Exceptional Podcast Network.